Good morning, family. I invite you to stand as you're able to receive um, this morning's scripture passage, a very familiar passage taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And it is my hope this morning that, though this is a very familiar passage to many of us, that through the enabling of the Spirit, these words would fall fresh and heavy and real upon our souls. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these, Calvary family, is love. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, all. How are we doing? Good. All right. We're continuing on in our uh, sermon series, The Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. And uh, last week, we were following Paul on his trip to Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to pick that story back up again uh, this morning. He arrives in Jerusalem, and so we want to see what happens. We saw last week that every time he would, would come to a new town as he was getting, making his approach, the prophets would come and would say that uh, suffering and trials and affliction were waiting for him. And so now we're getting to Jerusalem. We're going to see some of these sufferings and trials and affliction. We're going to be looking actually at Acts 21, 17 through 22, 24. So uh, it's a lot of text to cover. And I decided it was probably too long for our scripture reading. 
I remember as a kid when I would go to church and then the pastor would, would read like four chapters from Levitic, Leviticus for the scripture reading. And as a kid, you're just like, oh, when can we sit down? Will it never end, you know? So I won't uh, subject all the kids in the room to such a long reading, but uh, that's where we're going to focus. But I had us read 1 Corinthians 13 because we're going to come back to that uh, at the end of the sermon. But the main action of the sermon takes place in Acts 21, 17 through 24. All right, so grab your Bibles, which you've brought to church with you. Glad to see and uh, settle in. I'm going to read it. I'm going to kind of walk through. I'm going to read through it and walk through it uh, at the beginning. You're already seated, so it's easier for you. You don't have to be standing for 10 minutes while I read it. And this is one of my uh, favorite portions of Scripture. If you, uh, don't, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You can find one there in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, you can grab it and make your way to Acts chapter 21, uh, page 929, uh, in, or 930 rather, in my Bible, in your Bible too. But this is one of my favorite parts of Acts. I think it's full of drama. Really from here, Paul, uh, he has some trials uh, that he goes through, some legal trials, then there's a shipwreck, makes his way to Rome. It's all very exciting stuff. So as I read it, I'm going to make some commentary along the way here. And normally, I would give you a sense up front about the direction of where the sermon is going. Uh, but this morning, I'm just going to keep you guessing, all right? Just keeping it fresh this morning, you know, so you're not quite sure where we're going. But as we're going to see in our text, Paul gets swept up into another riot. He's been, it's been uh, instigating quite a few riots. Now, be, to be fair to him, he doesn't start this one, right? So he's not responsible. The one is not on him. But it's a riot all the same. For what I want you to see as we're reading this text, what it is exactly that sets this riot off. Paul is going to be making a speech. He's going to be midway through his speech, and then it's just going to break loose. All right, so what is it that Paul says? This is what I want you to be thinking about. What is it that Paul says that kicks off this riot? And then from there, we're going to draw some applications for us as a congregation. All right, so Acts 21 17, and then we'll be reading through 22, 24. All right, so uh, remember now, Luke is the writer of Acts, so he's saying we. So in 21, 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So here's the apostles and the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And after greeting them, he related to them one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So all his travels up through Asia and, and abouts and into Greece. And when they heard it, they, were, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews here in Jerusalem of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law, meaning the law of Moses. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs, to his customs. So when Paul got, he'd be preaching, and a lot of his ministry was to the Gentiles, and he, he would deliver the judgment that had been given by the Jerusalem church that the Gentiles do not have to keep the law. But that was then rumor milled back to Jerusalem that Paul was telling the Jews they didn't have to keep the law, and they didn't have to follow the food laws, they didn't have to circumcise their children, or they could abandon the customs of the people. And so this created a lot of conflict in the Jewish community about the Apostle Paul. He was a controversial figure, largely because he was misunderstood. 
right? So the, the apostles, as Paul is coming back into Jerusalem, they're like, hey, listen, you're misunderstood. And there's all this rumor going around that you teach the Jewish people to abandon their Jewish heritage. So what then is to be done? All these Jews who are zealous for the law will certainly hear that you have come. So now we've got an idea for you, Paul. This is how we think we can kind of smooth this over. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, have their, may shave their heads. So there's a, a, a Jewish cleansing rite. Uh, it takes place at the temple. It has some expense attached to it. And the apostles say to Paul, listen, why don't you participate in this Jewish cleansing rite with these four Jewish believers, pay their expenses to show that in good faith you're a supporter of the law. And then everyone will know that there is nothing in what has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Because Paul did live in observance with the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. This is referencing back to Acts chapter 15. Big controversial moment in the church. Do the Gentiles also have to keep the law? And the answer was no. They just have these four things that they have to do. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, which is all kind of associated with idolatry, and from sexual immorality. So that was kind of the, the way that the church was navigating the Gentiles' relationship to the law. So then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost completed, because this cleansing uh, rite would take about seven days. So when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, who was a Greek, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which was forbidden. And so the whole city is stirred up and the people run together. So Paul's trying to keep his head down, just trying to show himself a good Torah-observant Jew in the temple. And this riot is starting around him, and he really hasn't done anything at this point. So they seize Paul, they drag him out of the temple, and they shut the gates. And as they were seeking to kill him, so they're, apparently they're, they're beating him up, maybe they're getting ready to stone him, Word comes to the tribune, the Roman tribune, who's the kind of the army commander of the area, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the tribune comes with some centurions. Each centurion has a hundred soldiers. So there's at least a couple hundred Roman soldiers with swords that have come in. And they grab Paul and they separate Paul from the mob that is looking to beat him up, as, that has been beating him up. And then the tribune came and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. So some in the crowd are shouting one thing, some are shouting another, and he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed out crying away with him. 
But you can picture this here. I just think it's an exciting scene where all the Roman soldiers have kind of gathered around Paul and are like with their shields trying to keep the, the mob back. And they're coming to the barracks and they're working their way up the steps of the barracks to go inside. Right? And the crowd is down there yelling and, and threatening and being angry. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? So this is the tribune responding to Paul. Do you know Greek? He's surprised that Paul speaks Greek. He assumes that Paul is one of these zealot Hebrew uh, from Jerusalem. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So there may have been a reference to some Jewish zealot in Egypt who started a rebellion there. And Paul replies, I am a Jew from the Tarsus in Sicilia, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. Paul's always motioning with his hands right before he speaks. So if you're a hand talker, don't feel bad. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul. He's always motioning with his hands before he speaks. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So they want to hear what this rabble-rousing Jew who's been sowing discord all around the Roman Empire is about to say. And when they hear him speaking in Hebrew, now they even get more quiet. This is a really dramatic moment. At least I think it's a dramatic moment. And Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Camille, according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. Camille was a renowned rabbinic Pharisee teacher. He's probably the most famous in his day. He shows up earlier in the pages of Acts. And Paul is saying, I have been educated as a Pharisee at the feet of the most important of our teachers. I've been zealous for the law, just like all of you are. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem and to be punished. Saying, I'm, I have, I've, I've been one of you. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So then when I returned to Jerusalem, 
and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So why were they shouting against him like this? Now notice, Paul is making his speech. The hush falls over the crowd. And they're quiet. They don't shout him down when he mentions Jesus back in verse 8. They don't shout him down when he mentions Ananias' prophetic message in verses 14 through 15. Or when he mentioned being baptized in verse 16. Do you see what he says right there in verse 21 that causes them to go crazy? What's the last word in your English Bibles that he says? He says, Gentiles, and all hell breaks loose. He says that Jesus sent him to minister among the Gentiles, and they just go crazy. Now, for those unfamiliar, the term Gentile just means simply non-Jew. It means nations, as in the, the other nations, the non-Jewish nations. So when Paul says he was sent by Jesus to minister to the non-Jews, to the, to the non-Jewish nations, that's all he had to say, and the whole thing breaks loose. And the Roman tribune doesn't know what's going on. He's not clear about all this. And the things are getting violent again. I mean, dust in the air and the whole nine yards, cloaks in the air. And so he orders Paul to be taken into the barracks and to be flogged to find out what the truth of the matter is. Now, a little sneak peek for next week. Paul doesn't get flogged, actually, but he does get arrested and stand trial, and we're going to get into that next week. But keeping with our story, why did mentioning the Gentiles, even so, even more so than mentioning Jesus, why did that ignite the fury of the crowd? Well, to understand the crowd's reaction, we need to review a little bit of the main lines of our larger story that we've been telling about the Bible for the last year and a half. It won't take me a year and a half to tell it, but let me just hit the highlights here that are going to feed into the answering this question. God creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2. He creates the world full of perfection, harmony, and unity. Adam and Eve, the first human pair, live in this symbiotic harmony. But then the fall happens and sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And the unity, the relational unity between Adam and Eve is torn asunder. The, the relational unity between uh, humanity and God is torn asunder. And the world becomes increasingly more filled with hostility and violence. Cain kills his brother uh, Abel. And things get so bad, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, the world is so full of violence, Scripture tells us, that God brings a flood 
that essentially is like a global reset, right? Wipes out everything, and he's going to restart the world with Noah. But sin makes it through the flood with Noah and his family. So things don't really get any better. And the peoples of the world all band together, and they are trying to create this great tower. This is the Tower of Babel, by which they are going to ascend up into the heavens. And things are just not going well. And so, and so now we get at the Tower of Babel, God steps in and he, he, he uh, confuses the languages, right? So all these different languages come upon all the peoples who are unified in the earth at this point. And the people can't understand each other. And so it's the fracturing into the nations happens then at this time in the, in the book of Genesis. It's a little bit like when the school has some trouble making kids and they put them in separate classes, right? Because if all of them come together, their, their power for evil is magnified, right? And so when all of the people of the world are together as one, their power for evil becomes magnified. So God splits them up. But disunity and division was never God's ideal. That wasn't the world that God wanted to create. So he calls forth Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and he gives a promise to Abraham that from Abraham would come a Messiah. From his line would come a Messiah. And this Messiah would bring a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And the nations would once again become one in unity and harmony. Love with each other and love with God. And the punishment that had been doled out at Babel would be undone. And the key to thing to remember here about Abraham's promise, and he's the founder of the Jewish people, is that the promise given to Abraham and his family is not just for Abraham and his family, but it's for the whole world, which meant the Gentile world. The Messiah, who would come from Abraham's family, would be the hope and redemption of everybody. But keeping Abraham's family intact until the coming of this Messiah was no mean feat. Abraham's family, when Abraham was called out, he was just another pagan amongst a world of pagan Gentiles. And so Abraham's family was just as prone to violence and debauchery and self-destruction as the next pagan nation. So in love, God gives Abraham's family, also known as the nation of Israel, a law, the law through the prophet Moses. It's a code of conduct and worship. We've talked about it before. And the law, the apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, was like a babysitter. It was like the adult in the room, right? The job of the law was to, was to show Israel how to live. And one of the big features of the law was that it was meant to quarantine, or what it did is it quarantined the nation of Israel, its own little pagan nation of Israel, away from all the other pagans, all the other debauchery that was going on in the world. And it was meant to preserve the integrity of the nation of Israel as much as possible. So we can think of this a little bit like, uh, as an example, like pregnancy, right? So when a woman is pregnant, she begins to eat different. She's taking her vitamins. She, she focuses more on her health. Because she recognizes that she is carrying a new life. So this is really what's going on with Israel. Israel has been called out by God and often actually is called the spouse of God, the wife of God in the Old Testament, right? And Messiah is going to be birthed out of the nation of Israel. 
And so it's important that Israel eats right and exercises and takes vitamins and doesn't get themselves in trouble because she's carrying Messiah. Right? So this is the law is given to preserve the integrity of the people of God, of the nation of Israel, while Messiah is on his way. But for the first stretch of Israel's history during the days of her youth, Israel was consistently disobedient to the law, which I think is pretty typical because youth very often are prone to see the laws of their parents as old-fashioned and unnecessary and, and overly binding, right? So if you think about who, who tends to break laws or who tends to resist rules, it's the younger rather than the older. The older are all about rules, it's the younger that are about breaking rules, Right? And so as an aside, we, this, is, well, this is what I'm going to give you, give you now is free. Right? This, you don't have to, this is part, not part of the sermon exactly. But as an aside, if we zoom back, I think we see the same tendency today among younger evangelicals. There's a steady movement away from the norms and the ethics that have governed evangelical identity throughout the centuries. And to be fair, not everything our parents teach us is true and helpful, and not everything evangelicals have stood for has been true and good and beautiful. And I know that some of you, no doubt there are some of you here even this morning, perhaps some of you younger people or young at heart, are trying to sort all that out, and that's okay. You know, we, we love you. And it's complicated navigating between the message of the culture and the message of Christianity, and what, how do these go together? I think it's complicated figuring that out sometimes. So take some honest time to sort that out. But as you're sorting it out, what I would say to you is don't overcorrect and reject law altogether. That's really what the nation of Israel did. As my old pastor used to say, when God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. I would add, don't hurt yourself and others. God has given us laws to help us. A life without rules and restraint doesn't liberate us. A life without rules and restraint actually leads to overwhelming and oppressing us. But back to our story. Israel did not listen to God. They were not keeping the rules and laws that he had given them. And they were so disobedient, in fact, that they ended up in exile. But after they returned from exile, they sobered up and became very obedient. So obedient, in fact, that they became Pharisees and legalists. They crawled out of the ditch of debauchery on the left, stumbled across the center of the road, sobered up, and then planted themselves firmly in the ditch of legalism on the right. So in their libertine days, they had fraternized and even slept around with, committed adultery with, all the other Gentile nations and gods. But then, by the time we get to the New Testament, they've so sobered up that they're now looking with disdain on the other Gentile nations and their gods. And that's the context now the opening pages of the New Testament that Paul has been ministering. He's in the temple with all the Pharisees and those who are very devout, the law-abiding, the judgmentalists, and the legalists. He's with folks who are zealous for Israel and zealous for the law, but who in their zealotry have forgotten that the law was for Israel and Israel was for the world. Now that Messiah had come, the law had finally been fulfilled. And Abraham's promise was breaking forth out into the whole world. And Israel should have been dancing with joy that salvation at last was coming to the Gentiles. But instead, 
They were wagging their finger in judgment. The Jews in the temple got so upset at the mention of Gentile salvation because they had forgotten that the whole point of the law was the salvation of the Gentiles. They had taken what was meant to be a means, the law, and they had turned it into an end. And when you make a means an end, you hurt the very people the means was meant to help. All right, now let's reflect on this a bit, try to apply it into our context here at Calvary Church in Oak Park in 2021. We Gentile Christians, which is what most of us are here, are not bound by all the particularities of the Jewish law. But we are bound by the New Testament imperatives and ethics given to us by Jesus and the apostles. And thank God we are because all those imperatives and ethics keep us intact as the people of God, just like the law kept the nation of Israel intact as the people of God. But if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake the Pharisees made and forget that our God-given ethics are not ends in themselves, but just like the Jewish law exist for love, for the salvation of the world. I think this is especially the danger of theologically conservative churches that take truth and ethics seriously. To hold on vigorously to rules and to ethics while neglecting the love and redemption towards which those rules point, that's not the gospel. That's just legalism. And truthfully, I think this danger can be overplayed sometimes. Sometimes when a conservative-minded individual or a conservative-minded church takes a firm stand on an ethical issue, outsiders look at them and accuse them of being legalists and judgmentalists. And that's not a fair critique always because not everyone who holds firmly to a clear moral ethic is a hater or a legalist. Jesus held firmly to a clear moral ethic. But sometimes it's true those of us who are most concerned about morality and ethics, at least traditional morality and ethics, can lose our way and forget that rules and ethics are means. They're not ends. Let me paint this, let me paint a scenario to help illustrate this point. Let's say that next Sunday, a non-Christian couple, let's call them John and Jane Seeker, walk into Calvary in the back here in our Lake Street entrance, They've got some young kids in tow, and they've not been to church before, so they stop at the front door, and they uh, talk with one of our greeters, and they say, listen, we're not Christians, and we don't even really believe in God, but life is pretty hard for us right now, and we were talking with a friend who attends here, and our friend told us that, like, maybe it would be helpful for us to come to church, and so we don't quite know what else we're supposed to do to solve the issues we're facing, so we're just coming this morning. We're not looking to convert or anything. We just want to learn what's going on, and maybe see if there's something that can help us. Is it okay if we come in? And our greeter in the back smiles a big smile and says, sure, absolutely, we're glad that you've come. No pressure. You don't have to be a Christian to attend, and we're happy to help in whatever way we can. Let me help you find the right class for your kids, and then walk the kids to the class. So John and Jane start coming to services most weeks. 
They find themselves drawn to the beauty of Jesus and the story of the gospel. They feel the love within the congregation, and they're struck by how kind everyone is to them. So then one Sunday, John and Jane hear about our Sunday morning classes and how our classes are full of members who study the Bible together and care for each other and pray together. So they find Pastor Manfred after the service, and they say, listen, we're still not Christians, but those Sunday classes, do you think it'd be okay if we we went to one of those Sunday classes? And Pastor Manfred, he says, for sure, our Sunday classes are beefy, which I think is his favorite word lately. Very beefy. We study the Bible and pray together. We talk about life. We love each other. And if that's something you're interested in, then yeah, you know, by all means, we would love to have you join. So John and Jane join a Sunday class, end up connecting with some other Calvary families. Their kids start having play dates with some of the other kids from church. And I will just leave that story right there. Still in process. And even though it's still in process, I think it's safe to say that most of us would count that as success for our church. That a non-Christian couple would feel welcomed at our church and feel free to explore the claims of Christ and to experience the love of Christ in this community. I mean, that would be a happy story all around, whatever the outcome was for John and Jane. All right, now let me rewind to the beginning of that story and play it back again. But this second telling starts out exactly the same way with a new non-Christian couple walking in Lake Street, holding hands with kids in tow. But this time, the couple's name is not John and Jane, but John and Jack. How would that story unfold here at Calvary? Would it even get off the ground? Would their friend say, oh, my church, that'd be a, that'd be a great place for you to go. You'll find help there. And if that did happen and they did come, would the usher smile a big smile of welcome and greet them? Would the new couple make friends in the Sunday class? Would their kids be invited over for play dates with other Calvary kids? I don't know. I don't know the answer because to my knowledge, that's never happened here at Calvary. So aside from trying to guess the future and think, could it happen? How, how does that second story make you feel? I won't make you answer. I'll tell you how it makes me feel. It makes me feel a little bit like one of the Pharisees. The true and proper strength of the Pharisees was that they held with integrity to the law to ethics. And that was right and good, but their grave and damnable error was that they forgot that ethics and rules were merely a necessary means to love. They used the law as a means to reject the very people that they had been appointed by God to bless. It can be the same for us. Scriptures are, I think, abundantly clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God 
As ordained sex is a procreative, unifying power that should only be wielded in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. But what are sexual ethics for? Not to bind and oppress people, but to preserve the integrity of the people of God so that we can preach the good news of Jesus' love to those whom Jesus loves. If a gay family deeply loved by Jesus can't find the love of Jesus here, where do we send them? Now, I know it goes both ways. We might be standing with open arms of love, ready to love all the lost that would come to us, but not everyone will step into that embrace. And that's just the hard reality of the world. But are we standing with open arms of love? Are we as a church standing with open arms of love? Are we as individuals? A friend of mine pastors a church in Hollywood. It's a big church, around 4,000 people. And it's an evangelical church. It's much cooler than ours because it's in Hollywood. And, uh, uh, my, and this pastor friend of mine, he's just, he's so cool. He preaches in skinny jeans and he's just, you know, everything I want to be as a pastor, but I'm not. And, um, and they have the same they have the same basic traditional uh, stance on gender and sexuality that we do. And he told me about a third of the regular attenders at his church on any given Sunday are same-sex attracted, many of whom are not Christians. And I asked him, why are all these folks coming to your church? Do they know your church's stance on sexuality? He said, yes, they do know, and I preach on that. We don't try to hide it, but they come because they feel the love of God here. Some of them even convert. Listen, we're called forth into existence so we can be loved by Jesus and share his love with the world. We have not been called forth into existence to share his ethics with the world. Now, I could have used any number of examples of legalism to make this point about the danger of confusing means and ends. But the reason I chose the LGBTQ example is because at this time in our culture, as it relates to ethics, sexual ethics are probably one of the most challenging ethics for a theologically conservative church to maintain. We get the most flack from our culture probably on on this point. And it's here that we can feel the most beleaguered and most on the defense. And when one is feeling attacked, and you've felt this, right? Whether you're marriage, friendship, parents, when you're feeling attacked, what's the instinct, right? When you know you're right about what you're being attacked by, the tendency is to dig in and to get combative. But in our strong zeal to hold the line on our ethics, and indeed it does take strong zeal to hold our line in this culture, we can easily forget to be loving. So take this as a maxim. The more zeal you have for truth and ethics, the greater the danger that you will be totalizing and unloving towards those who oppose your vision of truth and ethics. Read it again. 
The more zeal you have for truth and ethics, the greater the danger that you will be totalizing and unloving towards those who oppose your vision and truth and ethics. Now, it's not inevitably true. It's not that zeal automatically leads to totalizing others. Jesus had zeal for truth and ethics. But the danger is very real. Truth and ethics are true. But you know what's even more true? The love of God is more true. We as a conservative church and as conservative Christians must always bear in mind that our lives are rooted and grounded in God's love. And our mission is powered by joy, not by our ethics and our morality. And if younger evangelicals are ditching historical Christian ethics, maybe, maybe, at least part of the blame is that older evangelicals have given example of zeal for ethics, but not for Christian love. How are we known in this community as a church? Now, a lot of people don't think much about church. But if we're known for anything in this community, what are we known for? Are we known for our love? Are we known for our ethics? And you as an individual in your community, your neighborhood, your family, wherever it is, what are you known for? Are you known for your love? Are you known for your ethics? Ethics and morality, yes. They are the necessary means by which we hold together as the people of God. We can't and should not compromise our ethics. But rules and morality and ethics are only means. Love is the great end towards which all things point. Listen again to our reading from 1 Corinthians 13, just these first opening verses. If I speak the tongue in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have to the poor, to deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. We could add another sentence in here. If I hold zealously to Jesus' ethics, but I don't have love. I'm nothing. Without love, we're just a clanging symbol at best. Now, here's the most important point of this sermon, and I've saved it for the conclusion. If we've forgotten, and not all of us have, I don't want to put this on all of us, right? Some of us, we're all in different places. This sermon maybe isn't for every single person here. But if we have forgotten how to be loving, it's only because we've forgotten how loved we are. And more than anything, even more than I want us to be loving to the outsider, I want us to know how much God loves us. You guys are going to get tired of me telling you how much God loves you. But I'll stop... (laughs) But I'll stop when God stops. Jesus loves us unconditionally, without judgment, 
without a scowl long before we ever loved him or had any kind of thought about him or even kept the first ethic that he commanded us. Nothing that we did caused him to love us and nothing that we do or will do causes him to love us less. And even in our struggle to grasp his love for us and extend it to others, he loves us. He doesn't just love us so that we can love others. I think in my life a lot, I've, I've recognized like, I, you know, God loves me so I can love others. But I've focused on the love for others part. And I've kind of felt like that's the part God's focusing on. He's just given me this so I can give it away. He's not really giving it to me. He's giving it to them. So I just have to be this conduit, right? And I end up becoming just a means that God uses. That's not how God loves us. God loves me even when I'm not giving away his love. He just loves us full stop. We're not just some means to a greater end. We are the object and the end of his love. And he is here with us now. And he loves us just like we are. He loves you just like you are. So don't, love, don't leave here feeling the weight of your failure to love. That's not really my heart in this sermon. We all fail to love properly all the time. And you know what? It's okay. It's not okay, but it is okay. He loves us even when we're not loving like we should. So if that's us, that's you this morning, let's just own the shortcoming as is necessary, doesn't apply to all of us, perhaps equally. Own the shortcoming of your failure to love and let it point you back to Jesus' unconditional love for you. And then in the joy and the freedom of Jesus' love for you, and as he enables you, extend that love to others. It's such good news that Jesus loves us even when we don't love others like we should. Because if he didn't, we'd all be hosed. But let's keep growing in it. Let's keep getting better at it. Let's keep loving the other. Amen? God, thank you that you sent us, Jesus. We, we just don't know how to love like we should. We don't know how to be loved like we should. And thank you that you love us since the foundations of the world even before we existed to give you love in return, even as we came into this world distracted and turned away from the love that you were offering us, you still have loved us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to become such recipients of your love, so embracing of your love, that it would overflow into the lives of those that you also love, and that we would have the joy and the great privilege of extending your love to others. And that in the extension of that love, that we would experience even more of your love. So God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the love that you have given to us in your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.